Well, let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It has been a full morning for many of us already, so we will jump right into the text here. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll begin reading right in verse 1. Paul says, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions, just as I have delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off and her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, was not man, excuse me, for indeed, man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. We'll stop there and read the rest of the chapter when we come to the Lord's table at the end of our service. But let's pray again. Heavenly Father, thank you for the consistency, the relevancy, and the perfection of your word. It's why we're here today. We're here because... In faith, we believe that you have communicated your wisdom to us through your word, through the inspiration and illumination of the Holy Spirit. Where else will you go, Lord, but to you for true wisdom? These are not simple words to understand, but we pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and a mind to understand and a heart to obey. Help us, Lord to recognize how awesome your truth is. We look forward to it now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's dive right into our study of the text. Back in verse 1, Paul began with this part of his letter to the church of Corinth by saying, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. We have to remember that the chapters and verses were not originally in these letters. The letter came as a whole. And Paul has most certainly just delivered, as we saw last week, three chapters of exemplary conduct and thought. And at the end of it here, and at the beginning of this next chapter, we see him again urging the church to imitate me just as I also am of Christ. 
Paul has said this a few times already, but I want to point out to you today that it is healthy for both you and me to adopt that phrase. It flies in the face of hypocrisy. You know that the more common, the worldly, the hypocritical one-liner is, don't do as I do, do as I say. That is such an empty phrase. If it's not good enough for you, why is it so good for me, right? Christians, by the grace of God, should be able often to say, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. You see, there's a a two-way impact there. It makes me accountable when I say it. It forces me to live in an exemplary exemplary way. But the second part of the phrase there, just as I also am of Christ, forces the listener, the observer, to be discerning and to know what is Christ-like and what is not. Sadly, and I imagine we could all testify to this at some point or another, Sadly, we see sometimes Christians follow the example of other Christians, especially leaders, and those examples were not Christ-like. Part of the shame is shared by the church for not being able to discern what is Christ-like. It reminds us of the urgency with which we must study and know and understand the Word of God. So we see that this phrase and its usage accomplishes much good in the church. And I humbly encourage you to follow my example as I follow Christ. Parents, live in such a way that you can say to your children, follow my example as I humbly follow Christ. Believers have a moral obligation to set a godly pattern for other believers, especially those who are younger than the fa- in the faith. This is one of the, true, the great evidences of true Christianity. Matthew 7, 16, you will know them by their fruits. The walk talks louder than the talk talks, as they say. Let's look at verse 2. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. After several chapters of fairly severe reprimand and a lot of firm teaching, we finally have a compliment. Now I don't recall if this is the first one, but it is a rare one. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure exactly how to read this verse. Some commentaries suggest that Paul is actually mocking the believers in an an instructional way. He's mocking them because they have clearly let go of some of the traditions, some of the teachings, that is, the apostles' doctrine and practices. We're not talking about ancient traditions here. That is not the usage of this Greek word in this context. The Corinthian church had clearly dropped some of Jesus' teaching that the, the apostles had delivered to the church. Perhaps Paul is mocking them to make a point. Or perhaps Paul has observed some things in the church that they have been faithful with, and he's complimenting on them, complimenting them on it. He doesn't specify what it is, but regardless, he has this compliment to make. But as we are going to see, it's very short-lived. Verse 3, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, And God is the head of Christ. 
if your mind is engaged at all this morning, then you recognize that we are playing with some radioactive material right there. There are three relationships given in this verse pertaining to authority and leadership, headship. Most Christians are just fine with two of these relationships. It's the other one that is the problem. And it's not the God one and it's not the Christ one. It's the other one. It's the man as the head of a woman relationship that has caused and will cause no small amount of friction in marriages and in the church. Here's what's interesting. How did Paul begin verse 3? He said, I want you to understand. What does that imply? It clearly implies that to some degree or another, they weren't understanding the husband-wife relationship. And my sense is that not much has changed in 2,000 years, especially with the attention in recent decades on the feminist movement, which we're not going to get into today. There are some elements of the men and women relationship and specifically the husband and wife relationship that need to be corrected. But that's not what Paul is addressing right now, so let's stay on topic. He is addressing the God-ordained, God-exemplified, man-is-the-head-of-a-woman relationship, specifically referring to marriage. And yes, the Greek word used here in this context, not only in Scripture but in much Greek literature of the time, consistently refers to the term headship, over a person as referring to authority and leadership. And this isn't the only time we see this God-ordained relationship order in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24 says, Wives, be subject to your husbands, to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Ladies, allow me to humbly say that regardless of how you feel or what you think about the husband-wife relationship and regardless of what culture says and even regardless of what our own logic says, these are verses that every Christian woman needs to study and understand and honor. And if she does, she will be richly blessed and fulfilled by God. Men, I trust that you recognize that no small number of men has also misunderstood this biblical truth. And consequently, they have misused and abused the biblical principle of the man as the head of the woman. And again, no small number of women have misconstrued this biblical teaching and principle and therefore either written it off or drawn the conclusion that the Bible is wrong on this point or unfortunately view themselves in a demeaning way that Scripture never teaches or in some tragic circumstances has allowed themselves to be severely abused. Paul is going to shed some light on this divine order of headship and what it properly means. But before we look at the, first, the next few verses, I want to make sure we don't miss the blazing middle-of-the-day sunlight right here in verse 3. Notice that Christ is not just asking the wife to submit to the headship of the husband. He's asking her to do it like he submitted himself to the headship of God the Father. 
Ladies, if nothing else, perhaps you should walk away here with this determination. If it's good enough for Christ, then it's good enough for me. Christ was no less worthy under God, and neither are you under your husband. Christ was not inferior under God, and neither are you. Christ was not less spiritual, and neither are you. Christ maintained all his value when he placed himself under the will and headship of his Father, and so do you when you honor the headship of your husband. Both men and women must understand and recognize these truths. There is something tragically misunderstood in our society, and that is the terrible view that proper submission is a bad thing, a defeat of sorts, a limitation of potential, a degradation of personhood, an excuse for abuse. This is not true. The Bible defies such opportunistic lies from Satan that attempt to ruin God's good order for the family. Ladies, learn from this text that the relationship that you have under the headship of your husband parallels the relationship of Christ to his own father, and what a perfect relationship that is. By design, your relationship to the headship of your husband is wonderfully divine. I know this may take some rethinking for many of us here, but isn't that a huge part of what this whole letter to Corinth is about? Us setting aside our own limited, foolish understanding and receiving the perfect wisdom of God. Christ was successful in this life, and He was exalted in the next because He submitted to the Father. Jesus said in John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And what was the result of that? Philippians 2, 8 through 11. Jesus humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, for this reason also. What reason? The humility of Christ. For this reason also, God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is what the humility of Jesus accomplished. Ladies, likewise, you have the option of exalting yourself or letting God highly exalt you. You don't need me to tell you that He can do a much better job than you. We, we, and it's the same for us guys. James 4.10, we just studied this not long ago. It says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Yes, ladies, your position under the headship of your husband is a humble one, but it is an exalted one. It's a humble one, just like your husband's position under Christ. And just like Jesus is exalted, humbled but exalted under the Father. Ladies, recognize that God has called you to something that His own Son has already lived out as an example for you and for your husband. If we view the marriage relationship this headship relationship, in light of the Godhead relationship, 
it points our mind in a totally different direction because God the Father, God the Son, got it right. You see, the difference between the believer and the non-believer is that the believing woman says, this place of submission to the headship of my husband is God-ordained. That's why I accept it. I don't accept it just because he's smarter than me or, or has more skills. Man, let's be honest, that's rarely the case. The believing wife says, I accept it because I believe in the good sovereignty, the good sovereignty of God. I accept it because I believe he carefully placed me where he knows his best. The not, to the non-believing wife, this marital relationship is a fight for equality in all things. To the believer, it's a quest for the blessing and divine exaltation that comes through humility and respect and trust. Not so much in your husband, but ultimately in God. As we see over and over again throughout this book, these issues, like the others, this issue is a God issue. Ladies, you have been called to the high calling of womanhood. And some have been called to the high calling of being a wife under the headship of a husband. Embrace your calling. Love it because it is honorable and it is good in the most divine sense. We do need to, however, understand the terms that Scripture is using here. Contrary to incorrect and worldly presumption, Scripture does not call the woman to be a slave to the man. And nowhere does Scripture give man the authority or license to be overbearing or autocratic, a controlling force over the wife. Actually, we're going to see in the verses to come that Paul paints a very balanced and a very ordered picture for this relationship. And if we read what all of Scripture says about the marriage relationship, we see verses like the continuation in Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know these verses. Biblical headship is loving and sacrificial. In verses 28 to 31, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. I believe that God created every wife to thrive on being nourished and cherished by her husband. That is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of being loved deeply. My wife is fully capable of being her own woman, meeting her own needs, and paying her own bills, etc. Matter of fact, just a couple weeks ago, she was teasing me and reminding me that she could have had a higher paying job than the one I've got. And that's not to dog the church. We we're very thankful. She was headed straight into the medical field. But she gives me the privilege, as her headship, the privilege of nourishing and cherishing her in that way. That's just part of the responsibility God places on us men as the head of our homes. Now, don't take that to mean more than I intended. I'm not saying that a woman can't go out and work 
and perhaps even leave the dad home for a large part of the time with the children. I am not claiming that until somebody shows me chapter and verse that says the father should not be home primarily being an influence in the lives of his children. Christian fathers have largely and mistakenly abandoned or, or to some degree or another substituted their employment, employment for the high calling of raising their own children. Christian fathers have a responsibility in the home just as much, and I dare say more than the mothers, because they are the head of the home. I don't have any problem with an industrious Proverbs 31 woman. Matter of fact, I have great respect for it. So long as they recognize the role God gave them in the home and in the marriage as well. But I am starting to preach another sermon. So back to the text here. The point we learned from many scriptures, not just this one, is that there is a mutual godliness and benefit and respect and love that travels both directions in the marriage. But there is also a headship that God has given to the man over the woman. Scripture does not teach that a woman, a wife, should co-lead her marriage or her household as an equal authority with her husband. Scripture does not endorse a 50-50 headship split in the home. We need to be very clear on this because the world is preaching another gospel rather loudly at the moment, and they always have. Scripture teaches more on this. Verse 4, Paul applies this headship principle directly to corporate worship. He says, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Notice, the men were struggling with understanding this issue as well. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Notice, there was a very big two-letter word in this verse. And what was it? If. If it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut. I believe there was a cultural context that Paul was acknowledging right there. It's part of why this passage transcends time and cultures and has application to us regardless of 21st century hairstyles or dress fashions. Look at verse 7. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. We see very simply that there is an order of God's perfect creation that is to be acknowledged and respected going all the way back to the creation of humanity. God made Eve after and from Adam. Verse 9, For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Again, we see very simply here that there is a purpose for womanhood that is to be acknowledged and respected going all the way back to the creation of man and woman. She was created to be his helper. Genesis 2.18, you've heard this. 
Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Ladies, don't reject the divine purpose for which you were created. God did not mess up when He chose and made you to be the helper to your husband. That was not an afterthought back in the beginning of creation. Omniscient God knew exactly what He was doing. If anything, it was an emphasis on this point. Your helper status does not make you inferior. If anything, it elevates your abilities because even God could tell the man was desperately going to need some help. Whether men realize it or not, they basically have these two words tattooed across their forehead. Assistance needed. (laughs) Men, don't let a day go by that you don't thank God for the woman who has some skills that outshine yours. Superwoman is an appropriate title for our wives and all of the women God has given us in this church. Verse 10, therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now I'm tempted to just leave that one later so that you'll come back when we study this book again someday. And for the sake of time, I'm going to do just that. I'm going to leave you totally hanging on this one. If you want to on your own, Crack open a couple good study Bibles and commentaries, and you'll get some solid info on why Paul referenced the angels and their relationship to how you and I live in front of them. Verse 11. Here's where Paul counteracts the naturally proud and selfish and controlling inclinations of the men who hear this headship principle. Verse 11. However, in the Lord... Neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. What's Paul saying? We can't do it without each other. We need each other. This is a mandatory teamwork. Verse 12, for as the woman originates from the man, back to Eve and Adam, so also the man has his birth through the woman. Don't you appreciate that great balancing truth? Listen, buddy. You wouldn't even be here if it weren't for some heroic woman. Paul goes on to say, and all things originate from God. Yes, fellows, she came from you. In the sense of Eve created from the rib of Adam. But you came from God, and that means she did too. Matter of fact, the fellow has nothing to do with it. Adam just did what all guys are best at, and that is he took a nap, and bam, woman appeared. It's amazing how much gets accomplished while men sleep. Amen? The point is, she is just as much from God as you and me. She is equal in value, value, even though different in role. All of us men and women must remember these truths. David Guzik says this in his commentary, the men... The man or men who rule in the church or in the home without love, without recognizing the important and vital place God has given women, is not doing God's will. And he goes on to quote Redpath who said, a man who can only rule by stamping his foot had better remain single. But a man who knows how to govern his house by the love of the Lord through sacrificial submission to the Lord is the man who's going to make a perfect husband. The woman who cannot submit to an authority like that had better remain single. That's some pretty solid wisdom right there. Verse 13, Paul says, Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? 
Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. So let's touch carefully on the head covering and the long hair, short hair. From what I understand in the research I've done, and there is always more to learn, the head covering topic largely stems from religious and cultural traditions, as well as Old Testament Jewish law, which the Jews would have been very well acquainted with, having recently practiced it. In the Old Testament, if a woman was caught in adultery, her head was shaved as a sign of shame. It was ashamed her because her hair was beautiful. As Paul says, it's as a, as a glory to her. And often in the Greek cities, like Corinth, the prostitutes voluntarily cut their hair very short or even shaved it. They were recognized by it. They flaunted it. So if a woman threw off her head covering, it largely communicated her rejection of her husband and his headship. In a sense, she was throwing off her moral restraint. You recognize that this tradition is still practiced in many other countries around the world, especially in the Middle East, which has taken it even further and that the women usually cover all of their heads except their eyes. And they've attached even more meanings to it, which are not right, not biblical. But from another angle, we can relate to this topic in, in a small way today. Men take their hats off for prayer, especially in the military. You're taught to remove your hat when you walk into a building or when the flag goes by. It's a sign of respect and honor. Now about the long hair, short hair. Let me read three points from Guzik again. Number one, for as long as we have known, women have generally worn their hair longer than men. In some cultures and at some times, men have worn their hair longer than others, but no matter how long men have worn their hair, women, is, women have always worn their hair longer. Point two, based on this verse, many people have thought that it is a sin for a man to wear long hair, or at least hair that is considered long by the culture. But long hair in itself can be no sin. After all, Paul apparently had long hair for a time in Corinth as a part of his vow. You can see this in Acts 18. But the vow would not have meant anything if long hair was the norm. That's what Paul is getting at. Point three, while it is true that it is wrong for a man to take the appearance of a woman, Deuteronomy 22.5, long hair on a man is not necessarily an indication of this. It is far better for most preachers to be concerned about the length of their sermons instead of the length of people's hair. Okay then, moving right along. Paul told us what the focus of this entire direct discussion was back in verse 3 when he said, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. We'd miss the forest for the trees if we got all hung up over whether or not to wear a hat in church. Or how long a guy's hair can actually be. The whole purpose is that women submit to their husbands like the husband should submit to Christ, like Christ did to the Father. That's the whole point. The question for you ladies isn't, should you be wearing a head covering? Or how long should your hair be? The question is, are you honoring the headship of your husband? And are you expressing that biblical truth and way of living through the way you dress or whatever other source of expression you may have. Men, the truth is just as applicable to us. 
Does the way we live, does the way we allow ourselves to appear to the world do all that it can to express our submission to God? Is Paul asking too much of us after the past three chapters of saying, I will do everything I can to propel the gospel. I will do everything I can so that more may be one to Christ. I will do everything I can so that a brother or sister will be saved and grow in their faith. The whole issue here is the issue of the heart. The hat, the hair, the clothing is just the expression. Again, while the focus of this passage is often directed toward women, there is much to be learned and honored by men as well. Perhaps the more serious and more difficult and more critical responsibility lies in our hands. Are we as men submitted to the headship of Christ? Are we heading like He did? That means, are we the chief foot washer in our marriages and in our homes and in the church? He said, those who will be greatest must be least, must be servants of all. Too often men focus on wives honoring the headship of the husband when in all spiritual reality, I don't know how we can even hardly have time to worry about our wives. Aren't our plates full enough with our own responsibility? Mark and I, not too long ago, had the opportunity, the privilege of touring the USS Dennis, thanks to uh, Jerry Cudney's son-in-law, who is the executive officer of the boat. That is some mighty impressive rank. He can do almost anything he wants on that boat. He's either second or third in command. The thought comes to mind, man, wouldn't you like to be the executive officer of a United States aircraft carrier? And the answer comes right back, no, thank you. Way too much pressure and responsibility. The consequences are always severe when mistakes are made. How we've seen that in recent days. Men, how much more is our responsibility for the well, eternal well-being of our wife and our children as we lead them under the headship of Christ? Wives, don't envy your husbands. Help them. That's your high calling. Husbands, don't belittle your wives. Love and lay down your life for them like Christ did for the church. Christ's intent was never to belittle and demean and embarrass the church. On the contrary, what was his goal with his bride? To present the bride spotless. God presents the bride spotless to the Son. That's the picture of headship at work. Don't belittle your wives. Lay down your life. Your wives, lay down your lives for them. Husbands, don't, uh, wives, don't envy your husbands. Help them. If you want a super hot marriage, that's a picture of one. God's ways are so much higher and his thoughts are so much higher than ours. This is the way he has simply and perfectly ordained it to be. And if you and I are disciples of Christ, followers of Christ, then we in faith gladly embrace 
the ordained way he has made us to be. If the men would please come to serve communion. And fellows, go ahead and serve as soon as you're ready while I read some scriptures. When I'm done reading, I'll pray and then we'll partake of the bread and the cup. So please hold it until that time. In this pass through the book of 1 Corinthians, I'm not going to preach in depth on this portion of the text, the second half of chapter 11. This is a text that I can certainly come back to at another time, but for now, let's read these verses in the light of what Paul has been saying for the past ten and a half chapters. There's a heart attitude of humility and love and care and concern and a passion for the gospel that guides everything he has said to this point and now including what he says in regards to the Lord's table. Verse 17, follow along as I read. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better but for the worse. And he is referring to coming to the Lord's table, communion. For in the first place, when you come together as our church, I hear that divisions exist among you. My prayer as we approach communion today is that there will be less and less division in our marriages and in our families and in our church. Paul goes on to say, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, It is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and when one is hungry and another is drunk, what? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. That is an unusual lesson for us to remember at the time of communion, to approach the Lord's table with a compassion for those who are poor. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come." I had the, the privilege of sitting with a friend at the Gig Fest parade just a week ago. And afterward, our conversation shifted to this text. And he said something to the effect of, you know, I don't think that Paul is saying that we should examine ourselves 
and then approach communion with no sin in our life. Yes, there's an element of searching our hearts as we come, but I don't think that's all of it because none of us is perfect. He said, my sense is that it means we're to approach the Lord's Supper with all of our mistakes, our failures, our sins, and see them in the light of His sacrifice and His mercy and love and forgiveness. As I pondered that, I appreciated the humility He was after. If we look at ourselves before communion, we might come to the conclusion that we're doing a pretty good job. But we, if we come and simply look at His loving sacrifice and His humility expressed through His broken body and His shed blood, somehow the power of Christ crucified compels us to cease from sin and to rejoice in such a great salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross. Our minds can hardly even begin to grasp what was expressed when Jesus humbled himself and became like the creation. He became one of us. Can we even fathom such humility? But as Philippians 2 is so clear to remind us, his humility did not just stop at the being one of us. He went all the way to death, even the death of a cross. It's for that reason that you highly exalted him. Today, Lord God, in as best we are able, we sit here and we admire the exaltation of Jesus. We stand amazed in your presence as we're reminded that we are forgiven only because of what Jesus has done. Why you would choose to lay down your life and have your, shed, your son's blood shed for us is a truth too great for us to fully comprehend. It compels us to not only cease from sin, but to love the righteousness of God. Oh, that we would find ourselves submitted to the God-ordained headship that every one of us sits under, whether that be women to their husbands, husbands to Christ, all of us to Christ. Lord, this day, rekindle the fire for holiness that you command us to pursue. As Paul has said, you are Christians, so live like them. Thank you for what Jesus has done for us. We praise you and we love you in return. In Jesus' name, amen.